Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Hey, it's Kara and Steph back for another episode of Hands in Motion. All of us have experienced academia as students, but have you ever considered moving out of the clinic and back into the classroom as an occupational or physical therapist? Today, we are joined by Becky Nadusky, an OTCHT, who soon after beginning her career as an occupational therapist, found herself back in the classroom and never looked back. She offers up some great tips on the variety of ways clinicians can get involved in educating the next generation of OTs and PTs, as well as how to transition full-time into academia. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Becky. Hi, Becky. How are you doing? Doing great today. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Kara, how are you? I'm good. Becky, give us a little bit of introduction of who you are, where you came from, how you got to where you're at. Steph and Kara, thanks for this awesome invitation. I'm really excited to be here with you today. My name is Becky Nadusky. I am the Dean of the School of Health Sciences at Elon University in North Carolina. I started my OT journey at Washington University in St. Louis, where I got my master's degree in occupational therapy. I then also got a PhD in educational foundations from St. Louis University and spent the first 18 years of my career in St. Louis working at the Millican Hand Center, working at Shriners Hospital for Children, and teaching at Maryville University. I then went on to become the department chair for occupational therapy at Concordia University in Wisconsin, where we had three occupational therapy programs, an OTA to OTR program, a blended master's program, and a face-to-face master's program. And we also built a hand therapy doctorate, so an OTD in hand therapy while I was there. And about four years ago now, I moved down here to Elon University in North Carolina, where I serve as the Dean of the School of Health Sciences at Elon University. Currently, I have programs in physician assistant studies in physical therapy. We just built a nursing program or two nursing programs, and our new nurses arrive next week. And we also have an accelerated pathways program to PT and PA, as well as a physical therapy sports residency. So we do all sorts of things at Elon, and I'm just starting my fifth academic year at Elon right now. We noticed that you have been working in academia for the past several years. So what enticed you to get into academia as an OT? And when did you start to begin that transition into that setting? Steph, that's actually a really interesting question. I thought about that a lot, like what drew me to education? And I have to always look back and realize that I was raised by educators. So the power of education was part of my upbringing. My dad was the principal of my grade school. My mom taught at my high school. My uncle was a teacher. So I was empowered with educators throughout my entire life. And so I think as I look back, I realize this is probably where I was destined to be and it was who I was raised to be. So that's a real privilege, in my opinion, to be, you know, really empowered with education as a child and throughout my years, my young years. And that going to college was just something that was going to happen. I was really privileged in that regard. And so I feel very fortunate for that. When my career transition happened was very interesting because I graduated from Washington University from the occupational therapy program there in December of 1997. And I took a job literally down the street in the Barnes Jewish Hospital complex. 
And so I was very proximate to WashU. And so after that, I started working and I was working in rehabilitation with patients who had had strokes, with patients with brain injuries. I eventually moved into the hand clinic, but during those early phases of my life as an OT, I was just down the street. And so my anatomy professor, who I had built a pretty close relationship with, called me and said, hey, would you be willing to think about coming over and being a lab assistant? So I rearranged my schedule and I worked three tens and two fives in the clinic. And then I spent two afternoons a week in the occupational therapy program, teaching students anatomy. And I also spent a couple evenings a week working on pro sections in the donor lab. Oh, great. Great. So how long were you practicing prior to jumping into the academia setting? That was about eight months. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. That was months. fast. Yeah, yeah that was so, fast. <laughs> it was August of 1998 when I moved over and rearranged my schedule to go ahead and afford myself that possibility. Great, great. So I know you're in that setting. So what would you say so far has been your favorite part about being a professor? So it was interesting when you sent me these questions, I was really thinking about this, like, what are my favorite parts? And so I'm going to touch on four points that won't take too long. Don't worry. (laughs) Students, absolutely, without question, are my favorite part about being a professor. And of course, the great trifecta of academic life that perhaps clinicians don't always know about, which are teaching, scholarship, and service. And so if I start by talking about the students, it is a complete privilege to guide a student's path towards this career that holds such great value. And really every single day makes a difference in the lives of other people. I can't tell you how many students I have worked with and reminded of the incredible privilege we have as healthcare providers to truly change people's lives, to have a career of purpose. And that has been a great privilege. I also had this idea in my mind when I moved into full-time work in academia that for the number of patients I could see in the clinic, I could substantially extend my reach in patient care by helping to shape the next generation of OTs. And that is a responsibility that I didn't take lightly. I really thought a lot about kind of how many patients could I touch and how many patients then would my students then touch? And what was that impact? And what was that responsibility that I was undertaking to be part of an academic life? And so the students by far have brought me the greatest joy. Working with them is incredible. In in our next question, I'll touch on some of the challenges, but I would say with no question, my favorite part about being a professor is the students. The other thing is I love teaching. The pandemic has really reinforced to me that I like to be present and I like to be in person with other humans as a teacher. I like to feel the energy in the room. I like to see the aha moments, the light bulbs when people finally go, oh my gosh, I just put those pieces together. I just connected those dots and I get what you're actually saying. And to be in that room where people are around you with energy and nodding and smiling and engaged with you is incredibly powerful. And I actually love public speaking and I love being in front of people and being part of that learning experience. I think it's an incredible opportunity and I really, really enjoy it. I will say also, I think the scariest parts of academia for clinicians are this idea that when you build these packages for promotion and tenure, You have to demonstrate your teaching, you have to demonstrate your scholarship, and you have to demonstrate your service. And I actually truly appreciated those expectations for scholarship and service. I think they created in me an ethos and a commitment to contribute to the knowledge base in hand therapy specifically. It helped me pursue service in hand therapy. I've served on multiple therapy and surgery societies in multiple capacities and really enjoyed that work. It helped me grow as a person and as a leader. 
And I also really had this amazing privilege to explore opportunities to advance global health equity, to be part of the Guatemala Healing Hands Foundation, to be part of the Circle of Empowerment, and to take students with me to really dig into what does health disparity look like around the world and what obligation and opportunity do we have to advance health equity, global health equity? And what would that do if all of the clients that we served understood that we had that ethos and that kind of really idea about service as part of the profession that we love? And so while teaching scholarship and service are often feel like these requirements, for me, they also created incredible opportunities that I personally really, really enjoyed. So then on the flip side of that, and I know you, you alluded to that a moment ago, what are your greatest challenges about being in academia? Oh yeah. So the biggest challenge is the students, right? I mean, <laughs> lots of day, but the biggest challenge is the students. So I totally misunderstood when I started teaching. Now, mind you, I was 26 years old that students were fully formed, self-actualized adults, that they had broad worldviews, that they would be able to manage their emotional responses to stress. And I have to tell you, that's funny because that is certainly not the case at all. These people that we will encounter in the classroom have their own life stories. They have their own histories. They have their own lived experiences. And those histories and lived experiences will manifest themselves in times of great stress. And so when you think you're going to be sitting in front of a group of people who can manage and organize and plan and manage their time, their emotions, their stress, their lives outside the classroom, they need a lot of help with that. And quite frankly, they are still developing into young adults and you will become a profound influence in their lives if you decide that that's what you want to be. So you take 24, you take 38, you take 46 young humans who arrive in your classroom as a teacher, and your intention is to prepare them to become the best OTs that they can be. And unlike hand therapy practice, where you sit and devote your energy to optimal outcomes for single patients sitting in front of you, you now have to figure out how to teach this multitude of young humans the content for your course. You have to find the right balance of challenge and support if you truly intend to meet them where they are, which we call best practice in education. And if you really intend to be a great teacher, you actually have to care about these young humans. You have to actually want to care about them. You have to care about why they chose OT school. You have to care about all the ways they question their capabilities every single day in every single moment when they're faced with challenge of graduate school. You have to care about their lives outside the classroom as having a fundamental impact on their motivation and their success. And you have to care about helping them develop as the personal and professional and create the behaviors necessary for them to succeed as healthcare providers. So you don't just get to walk in a classroom, put up a PowerPoint and give a lecture. These students are complex. The work is complex. The commitment is huge. It's evenings, it's weekends, it's emails. I bet now it's text messages. That didn't happen when <laughs> I was a member, but it's all encompassing. And it really is something that you choose as your life's work, your passion, your commitment, your calling. And I loved it. And I loved caring for the students, but it, it takes a lot of work. So I know one of the challenges for me as taking students, and it's been very different because I kind of stopped taking students for a little while just because of where I was. But within the past couple of years, I started taking students again. And what I found was there was two different types of students. So we have the older student and then we have the younger student. And I was finding that the older students were having more difficulty in the clinic as far as just 
technology. And then the younger students were having trouble connecting to people because they're so used to it. They had the technology down, but they couldn't connect to the people on a personal level, you know, at different ages, we get all different ages. So they had a hard time connecting with those older people saying that, you know, Hey, I'm going to show that person to do a home exercise program on their phone. And they're 75. And now we have many tech savvy 75 year olds, but there's also those that population that are like, I don't want to go there. So they had a difficult time with that population, just as the older ones did with the technology for the younger patients. What are your thoughts on on that? And how do you deal with that? Steph, I mean, you are hitting the nail on the head. The generational differences in our students and in the clients we serve is profound. And we know also that technology can be disabling to older adults, right? So we we know that some older adults can't access and don't have the same skill set as some of our younger patients around technology. So as a therapist, we are required to be incredibly nimble in the ways we think about engaging with our clients. And to your point, which I think is really insightful on your part as a clinical instructor, you've got older students and you've got younger students. And so it's where do you find the central point? One of the ways we've really thought about that, I'm serving now as the Dean of the School of Health Sciences at Elon University. And one of our distinctives that we have built in the School of Health Sciences is this co-curricular initiative called Crucial Conversations in Healthcare. And the idea is that communication has changed. The way we communicate is ever-changing and different people might need different forms of communication from us. Most of us become healthcare providers because we want to be with other humans. Now, I would say that kind of during the pandemic and with telehealth, those things are really have been called into question, right? Are we actually going to be in human physical contact or human physical presence with people? But teaching our younger generation to be present, humanly, personally present with their clients is a challenge because they use these devices, right? They use their phones, they use their text messages, they use their computers. We all carry a computer in our hand that lets us connect with the entire world with our fingers, right? It's incredible. That being said, I need to actually be present and humanly connected and available for my patients in the clinic, in the hospital, wherever it is that I see them in the community. So how do we teach students to do that? We need to teach them to listen and listen with the intent of understanding. And so teaching people to listen in today's day and age where social media is ripe with conflict and demonstrates to us what civil discourse should not look like, we actually have to teach our students how to quietly listen, how to be present, how to try to understand, and really to respect and admire the worldviews of people that are different than we are. So it is our obligation in educational programs to teach our students to be great listeners. We also have to teach them that communication isn't always words. It isn't always having the right thing to say or knowing the right moment to say it. Sometimes it's just being with someone. I often, with my students in the Crucial Conversation series, I sit with them and talk about what it meant as a hand therapist to take down a dressing of someone who was post-operative multi-trauma, that they hadn't seen what their hand was going to look like when I took down the dressing. And my practice was traumatic hand injuries. So I would have patients that had their hands caught in table saws, gunshot wounds, knife accidents, you know, amputations. And I would be the person present with that patient when I took the dressing down. I was there emotionally, I was there physically, I was there as an educator, and most importantly, I was there as a human. Teaching students how to do that is challenging today, and all of us need to demonstrate best practice in how to be emotionally, physically, and you know, physically available for them. 
So those younger students, I think we have to demonstrate how to not use technology sometimes to be great clinicians. Now, with our older generation of students, those that are my age, older, you know, in their 50s and 60s that have decided to come back for a second career, they are going to struggle maybe with things like the EMR. I have a friend right now who's learning how to use a whole new EMR and is really struggling with it because it takes a learning curve and it takes time to learn how to use the technology efficiently. We know that there are whole groups of healthcare providers called scribes that are helping fill the gap between our boomer and greatest generation surgeons and, you know, filling in the EMR gap to help them continue to be successful in their practices. And so we need to also give some grace and time and training to our older students to become more familiar with the EMRs. I will tell you that we are also working at Elon in creating iPad programs for all of our students. So they have a lot of experience using EMRs and technology as part of a good treatment plan and ways to document in the electronic or technological space so that our students are equipped with those skills. It is challenging to find great EMR platforms for students. And as we all know, EMRs look, might look different in the different places that they go. And so I think it is also incumbent on the fieldwork educator to incorporate that training as part of upscaling the students to be ready for clinical practice. And so to your point, acknowledging the generations, I think knowing what skills they come equipped with and what they might need to you know, become better or more proficient at when they have the opportunities to actually work with clients, I think is an essential function of the fieldwork educator as part of the total educational process. So I want to kind of pivot. I know we've talked a little bit about your experiences in academia, but how as a clinician, how do you make that transition even just I guess, professionally coming with an entry-level OTPT degree, making that transition of, hey, I want to move into academia. Yeah, that's a great question. And so I will tell you that I was thinking a little bit about that. Like, what are the ways that clinicians could start to kind of dip their toe in the pool, so to speak? I think that's what your question is. Is that correct, Kara? Yes. So the first thing for me is establishing yourself as a great clinical educator, working closely with the fieldwork coordinator or the director of clinical education, if you're an OT versus a PT, establishing that relationship and being a partner in the education will help you hone the skills of what it means to educate a student. Because as a clinician, I think oftentimes we think of ourselves as demonstrating by doing, but I think we also can inherently think of ourselves as educator or an extension of the academic program. And so if you build that relationship with your directors of clinical education, think about advancing your skills as an educator so you become a better clinical educator, I think that's an easy step one, a very easy step one. Take students and educate them incredibly well and create the connection. Because I have to tell you, academic programs know who their great clinical educators are. And they will start tapping them for all kinds of interesting things. Can you come and help us with labs? Can you come and help us remediate with the student? Can we send a student who's struggling to you because we know you're great at education? That's just building your reputation with the academic unit as someone who's really committed to the education of the future generation of healthcare providers. And so I think for all the clinicians out there, that's your easiest low-hanging fruit is I want to be great at this thing. The second is we need lab assistants. And I always find this entertaining. So my students would tell me, and I was really, really blessed to have a clinical practice as I was a faculty member, because the students don't think their academics are real OTs or real PTs. They think we're teachers. And so when we bring in the live human specimen that is a clinician, 
they're like, ooh, ah, there they are. And so you guys are like on this fancy pedestal to them of like, they actually see the patients. They don't just teach us how to see the patients. They do the thing. And so we are always looking for real therapists to come to the lab, to teach our students hands-on skills and provide real life feedback. So I love the example when I would do splint checkouts with my students and George and I, I think George and I, George was my lab assistant at Concordia University in Wisconsin. And I think together we had like 85 years of hand therapy experience or something crazy. I'm like, George is the real OT. I'm the teacher OT. And so the end of every splint checkout, when they made their splints and we had to check them out, I would ask the students and George would ask the students, would I let you put this on a patient in the clinic? And you've watched this wash over them. They're like, no. Like, and it, the answer for them is always, of course not. That's not good enough. And George and I are like, no, actually quite good. Like we actually think this is a pretty good split. You need a little push here and a little this there, but overall, like this is acceptable. And so the real therapists that come to the lab are going to give them that kind of feedback. And they're going to say, Hey, Steph, if you were in the clinic, I would make these three changes. But otherwise as a clinician, as your fieldwork educator, I would let you work on that with the patient. And then they're like the affirmation that that creates for the student in the lab is incredible. The second thing is you see patients all day. You're going to bring me great case studies. You're going to bring great kind of lab examples, and you're going to bring these stories. I have to tell you, when I would leave the clinic on Tuesdays in St. Louis, I would leave the clinic at one o'clock and land at Maryville to teach gross anatomy at 1.40. And every single Tuesday, they knew I was in trauma clinic. And every single Tuesday, I brought them the trauma case of the day. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room when you share a clinical real story with your students that ties then to something that you're doing in the classroom. So clinicians bring those incredible patient stories. And it's like telling kindergartners a story at, you know, circle time. Like they're all wrapped with attention of going, you're doing the real thing that I aspire to do. So with that in mind, the other thing is you are connected to patients. You are connected to real live humans with conditions that could go to classrooms and help students learning experiences. In my opinion, there's nothing more powerful than bringing a client to class. And so when you think about your patients who have experienced a traumatic hand injury, who are living with chronic conditions, maybe living with a prosthetic, or who are even in the rehabilitative phase, those are incredible opportunities for student learning. Feeling a scar seeing how a prosthetic works, listening to the lived experience of adapting to a traumatic hand amputation. Those humans that come to our classrooms that tell their stories and let students work with them as part of their learning experiences, if I'm a teacher, I don't have access to that anymore. And so I'm counting on you to help me connect with those humans. Now you are this real life human that's doing, you're like the superhero, right? Because you're the actual clinician. And then these are the real people that have the diagnoses that will help our students learn. And then finally, the fourth thing that I have observed and been part of that's really powerful is when clinical teams and academic teams partner up. So in St. Louis, we had the St. Louis Hand Special Interest Group, and we hosted the Hand Special Interest Group in the donor lab at Maryville University with a surgeon. And so we invited all the local hand therapists to come to the university to be in the donor lab. And they would literally on the spot ask the surgeons to do procedures or to answer questions. And so there's these great conduits that we create for education for one another. Your faculty members need to be educating people as part of that teaching scholarship and service. It's part of what they need to do to achieve promotion and tenure. And your clinicians could really benefit 
from continuing education because you should hopefully be counting on your academic partners to be on the cutting edge of the literature, to be teaching students the most up-to-date evidence for practice. And I feel like our clinicians can benefit from that knowledge as well. And so if you are a part of any of those situations, you know, from the very beginning of being a great clinical educator, to being a lab assistant, to bringing clients to class, to connecting for education, you then build partnerships. And quite frankly, we all know who our great community partners are, our great community clinician partners. And those are the people that tend to bubble up as great opportunities for people that could come to the classroom. And if you lean into that opportunity, then you could really build a career in academia. On your side, it also gives you an, the opportunity to go in and go, I either really like this or, wow, <laughs> like I want to be a lab assistant but I'm not sure I want to run this whole thing by myself. And so the need for lab assistance, I don't think will ever go away. And I think there's constantly opportunities to find that spot in academia where you might be able to fit in and then start to build your, you know, your expertise in being a teacher in the classroom. Those are some great, great suggestions because myself, I'm thinking about dipping my toes into that academia setting. So I think I may follow through with a couple of those personally. Kara, do you do any academia work at all? Yeah, there's a couple of schools here that I've had an opportunity to lecture once a year, even work with some of the PT residents that are here as well. So getting some experience and and helping out with, with some of those, those classes as well. I have a question about degrees. So I know a lot of the schools are now transitioning to entry-level doctorates. I know PT, that's pretty much where we're at at this point and still offering transitional degrees. And I think OT is kind of moving that direction as well. And in order to teach in those programs, you have to have the equivalent of that degree that the students are obtaining. But then there's also terminal degrees. So PhDs, EDDs, SCDs, things like that. I guess explain to us kind of the, the difference in those and what schools are looking for when they're bringing on faculty. So I'm going to just start with a little historical information just for any listener out there that maybe doesn't know the history of the OTD. So when I was a department chair at Concordia between 2013 and 2017, this was the time when a lot of energy from ACODE and AOTA was being placed on whether OT should go to an OTD as the entry level degree. And I will be honest with you and say that when I left Concordia in the spring of 2017, ACODE was about to say hey, we think that OTD should be the entry level. You saw a lot of programs already moving to OTD. And if you got on the AOTA website, I did this morning just to make sure that I had all my facts straight. If you get on the AOT website, there is a beautiful historical kind of summary of what happened. And basically what happened was ACOAT said, we think OTD should be the entry level. And then clinicians all over the country said, we don't agree. And they reached out to the AOTA leadership and, and did not support that or not in support of the entry-level doctorate as the only entry point for occupational therapists. And so then you saw a lot of conversation. You saw a lot of trying to figure out what the role of ACODE is, which is the Accreditation Council of Occupational Therapy Education, and what the role of AOTA, the American Occupational Therapy Association, is, and whose job it is to determine what entry-level practice is. And you also saw the representative assembly of AOTA get involved. At the end of the day now, AOTA and ACODE have clarified their roles in determining academic entry points, and they've landed that as an OT, you can enter the profession with a master's or a doctoral degree, an entry-level clinical doctorate, 
And as an OTA, you can enter with an associate's or a bachelor's degree. So there's a lot of choices on the table. So the OTD has not been mandated or the mandate was, let me say, retracted. And now students have a lot of choice of the level at which they can enter. So to start off with your question, Kara, I think to clarify what degree the students are going to get will clarify what preparation you have to have as a faculty member. The other thing I want to say out loud is there's a difference between a lab assistant and the instructor of record because we also, universities are responsive or responsible to their regional accreditors. And so their instructors of record, like who's in charge of the course, is the person they look at most completely to say, do you hold the degree necessary and the expertise necessary to teach this course? Now, the people that you have assisting in your labs don't necessarily always have to meet that same high level. So you could have a lab assistant who has a bachelor's degree, as long as they are not responsible for the content of the course and or the grading of the students, they can help in the labs a lot. And so you do want to clarify with your academic program what the required degree is based on what you're trying to do. The difference between a lab assistant and an adjunct is a lab assistant is going to work under the purview of a faculty member, whereas an adjunct professor is typically going to have complete responsibility for a course. So if you were thinking about transitioning from a lab assistant to wanting to teach a course all of your own, you might not be able to do that if you don't have the correct degree based on the degree that they are providing. So I think those are good questions to ask your academic units. And I want to be really clear this isn't up to the academic unit. This is a responsibility we have to our creditors, right? And a creditor makes sure that we are creating great educational opportunities and that we are accountable for assessing whether students are actually learning. And so we are responsible for our outcomes. So we are beholden to quite a few people from a program director perspective. So to go back to your question, so it starts with those clinical doctorates. So let's start with the OTD. I want to begin by saying I worked with some of the best hand therapists that I've ever encountered at the Millican Hand Center in St. Louis. They had bachelor's degrees. I also wanna say that our profession was built, founded, strengthened. I mean, we stand on the shoulders of giants in hand therapy. When we think about all of these people who paved the road that we are privileged to walk, these people all had bachelor's degrees. So I do not want to misunderstand or understate the power of what happens when you leave your academic program. Ultimately, every single hand therapist in this country determines their level of expertise, their commitment to evidence-based practice, their knowledge of the literature, and their own professional development by the courses they attend, what they read, what they do, and how committed they are to excellence in practice. I believe wholeheartedly that excellence in practice has nothing to do with the letters behind your name. I agree. It has to do with who you are and what you intentionally choose. And so I don't want this to get confused as me kind of saying what degree anyone should hold. I think it has to do with what you intend to do with it. And so to segue to that, I will say that I believe that you could have a hand therapy practice with people educated at all different levels and have excellence in hand therapy practice, and not everybody in your clinic has to have a higher degree. Now, that being said, this is where there's going to be a tension point, because if all of your students are now coming out with master's degrees, or you have a lot of students coming into your clinic with clinical doctorates that come out and say, Steph, Kara, I want you to call me Dr. Nadusky. (laughs) You don't go by Dr. Strauss, right? Or Dr. Smith. And and we all know that's confusing to our patients, right? And so I think there's some tension points that all of us are 
you're going to have to figure out how to navigate as we move forward. I think we can do that gracefully. I think we can do that appropriately. But I also will tell you that as an academic, I do my best to not let my students leave my classroom with some crazy huge ego about the degree they're obtaining or intend to compare the degree they have to a degree that anybody else has or somebody with 35 years of experience in hand therapy practice. There is incredible value and expertise in those years of experience that I do my best to help students understand. I would also tell you that a great field coordinator is also going to tell her students, it's a privilege to be on a clinical. These people are helping educate you. Please do everything in your power to respect and acknowledge the work that they are doing for you personally for you. And so we do try in academia to make sure that those egos don't enter your clinic, but they will, right? You're going to have some students that do come in and that's going to happen. So let's just say that you are a clinician right now and you are exploring whether you want to advance your degree to an OTD or to an EDD or a PhD. If you came to me, Kara, and said, hey, Becky, what do you think I should do? I would look directly in the eyes and say, Kara, what is your goal for your career? Now, I will tell you, when I met with a financial planner, he's like, what's your goal for retirement? I'm like, I don't know. Like, how would I know that today, (laughs) right? I'm like, I don't know. You might say to me, like, I have no idea. And so I would say to you, okay, let's just talk through the options. What an OTD is going to get you is it's going to get you a faculty role teaching doctoral OTD students at a small private or maybe even as an instructor at a public institution. Now, an instructor is not an assistant professor, an associate professor, or a full professor. An instructor is kind of a different level, right? That means you're a clinical instructor, which means you have a clinical doctorate. I want to acknowledge that you have hierarchies. In the big research institutions, there are hierarchies of teaching faculty and research faculty. So the OTD would fit you into the teaching faculty compartment. It might allow you tenure at some small privates. It might not. It's not a terminal academic degree. I will say, I want to talk for a second about what the OTD is intended to do. The OTD is intended to advance evidence-based practice. It's intended to create clinician researchers who are intentional about studying the effectiveness of their interventions. It's intended to produce clinician researchers who are contributing to best practice in OT and PT. These graduates work with a research mindset. They approach assessment as data collection. They constantly and carefully analyze their interventions to see if they are effective and to demonstrate their effectiveness. And clinical doctorates should help us create more body of knowledge, right? Actually contribute to the literature for all of us that know we're doing really great work with our patients, but don't have the research acumen or skill set to actually put that into the words that need to happen for it to be in the Journal of Hand Therapy or present at a conference. Your OTD graduates and you pursuing an OTD would give you that skill set. That's an incredible skill set. And if we want to advance hand therapy into the next kind of 10, 20, 30 years, we probably should all be thinking about whether we can prove that what we do as hand therapists works. Is it effective? Should we get paid for it? Do we make a difference in the participation in life for our patients and of our patients? That mindset, though, of assessment is data collection, and every time I see my patient, I'm asking, is the intervention working, and do I have data to support that claim? That's a different mindset. And so I do think the OTD will help you establish those habits of mind that will help you be better at demonstrating outcomes. That doesn't make you a better hand therapist, but it might help advance our profession, if you're following what I'm trying to say there. 
So then the PhD, right? Like the PhD or the EDD. If you came to me, Kira, and said, Becky, I want to be an academic. I want to have a full and fulfilling career in academia. Kara, I would 100% tell you, you need to get a PhD. I'll never forget, I was a brand new academic. I'm at Maryville University. I have to get a doctoral degree. I have a master's in OT within six years. And I'll never forget this because I was at a hand meeting at an ASHT meeting and Paula Steo, who doesn't know me from Adam and doesn't still know me from Adam, gave a talk and came off the stage. And I'm like this young punk. And I woke up to him like, I need to ask you a question. And he's probably looking at me like, I don't know who you are. And then it gets better because I said to him, if you were going to give me advice about degrees in academia, would you encourage me to get a two-year OTD or to pursue a PhD? And he said, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I don't know, but I don't want any door to be closed to me. I want to have every opportunity available in academia. He said, then you go for the PhD, do the hard thing, do all the work and make sure you understand how to be an academic and what it takes so that you have upward mobility in higher education. That advice has served me incredibly well. It has taken me from faculty to department chair to dean. In my opinion, it affords me a future career that I could be a provost or a president if I wanted to, because I have the degree required in academia to afford me those opportunities. I think an EDD is a good degree. I would encourage any academic, anybody who wants to be an academic, if you're going to do the EDD, you might as well just go ahead and do the whole thing. I would really try to encourage someone who I thought was capable to just do the whole thing and go ahead and get the PhD. If I really thought that they had the intent and interest to go as far as possible in academia. Does that help? Yes, absolutely. I think that's a a great explanation of kind of the whole, the whole realm. And I think good advice. I mean, for you to say, I think hearing you say you didn't want any door closed, I think that's huge because I think that does, as you said, I mean, that opens so many doors, whether you, I mean, I know several people that have a PhD that go, okay, I don't want to do academia, but they still have that degree that if a door opened, they could, and they might be still, you know, a full-time clinician, but they still have doors open to them if the opportunity comes available and they have that interest later on. And so I think, I think that's great advice. The other thing for me is you're not going to see the doors. So I think as young people, my students especially think that our lives are linear, right? We're going to go in this straight line. And I'm here to tell you, and you know, you both know this, life is like a curly Q maze of crazy, right? Like it's never going to go the way you thought it was. And you may not even today see a door that's on your path, but hopefully you have people in your life that are going to nudge you in the right direction. I have benefited from incredible humans. I'll never forget the first human that actually called me to academia full time. And I said, no, 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 no. I don't really want to be an academic. I'm about to sit for the CHT exam. The only thing I've ever wanted to be is a hand therapist, and I'm about to achieve that goal. Now, mind you, I was 27. And she was like, you know, Becky, I think I see more in you. She's like, I think CHTs are amazing, but I think you may have a little bit more potential than that. And so I think it also is our obligation as mentors, as colleagues, to help people maybe see possibilities that they don't necessarily think are possible and expose them to paths that might be challenging, but might also afford them with incredible opportunities and success. And so I would just encourage anyone who's listening to this to really not not think that your path has to end in one place and really be open to the doors that could be available to you. I think we kind of hit everything we wanted to cover today. 
do you want to leave us with one last, I don't know, Pearl, <laughs> as far as me personally, or anybody out there listening, starting to get into the academia setting, would you say really kind of volunteer, not volunteering, but getting in as an, not an assistant, but more maybe a lab assistant, kind of taking that route versus teaching a course? <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I think actually putting your toe in the water as a clinical educator and then as a lab assistant are great first steps. You had a question on your list that I'd love to end with because it's a bit of an analogy. You asked me a question about a disconnect between classroom and clinic and what students are learning. And I think this might also inspire people that are interested in academia or interested in education to really think about what it means to educate a student holistically. And so this is a little story. And I think the word disconnect, because I think there are a lot of therapists who probably think that there's a disconnect, that these OTDs entering the clinic or what the students are going to do or what they think, what you think, like of how to create the relationships for learning in the clinic. And I use an analogy often with my students to talk to them about building a house and what that means. And so what I would tell you is that when you build a house, you choose the location, you create the plans, you lay the foundation and you build the framework. And these choices are going to make your house strong and they're going to make your house stable. And so in my opinion, a great OT program is going to take the students through the steps of building the house. Once the house is built, we all know like in our houses, and I'm looking around my house right now, you know, you've got so many choices. You can choose your faucets, your carpet, your furniture. You can design your furniture. You can rearrange your furniture, but it's going to enhance the function of your house and make the house yours, right? So our students are going to be exposed to all of the choices to decorate their OT house. And they're going to show up at your clinic basically with a box of stuff that they've been exposed to. There's going to be curtains in the box and faucets in the box and furniture in the box, but they're going to show up with this box with a house and looking at you going, how do I decorate this thing? Like, how should I arrange it? What should I be thinking? And they want you to help them know what items they need to choose to complete their house, what should go in what room, what item they should choose, when to rearrange something. I think all those items in the box to decorate their house are their assessments and intervention strategies. And we're going to teach them all those But being in the clinic is where you help them connect, where you help them actually finish their starter home. When we graduate students in OT and PT programs, we tell them that they have arrived, ready for it, at the starting line. They're not at the finish line. They're at the starting line. So they've just built a starter house in your clinic. You've helped them just decorate the thing and put the stuff where you think it should go. So there may be different rooms for different things, but they need you to connect that, to help them decorate that house. So when they show up at your clinic, especially for those level twos, they are not a finished product. They need you to help them connect the dots, make optimal choices, assess when something isn't working, reassess, and be committed to making it as good as it can be. And they need your time, your expertise, and feedback. Being a great educator happens in so many places. It's not just in classrooms. And so when you think about whether you want to be a great educator, you could begin by asking yourself the question, am I really committed to education when the students are in my clinic? And if you find yourselves completely engaging with them, wanting to hear what they've learned in the classroom, challenging yourself to be, I loved when I was a clinician, my students would ask me a question I didn't know the answer to. And I loved those moments. I embraced those moments because what happened then was we were partners in learning. 
I actually worked with them to learn from and with them. And that's incredible. If you are built that way, if you want to share learning, if you want to engage with students and help them grow into incredible OTs, your first litmus test of being an academic happens when you take the clinical student and loving that experience. If you don't love that experience, the rest of the conversation we just had is a completely moot point because these are humans that you will have to nurture, care about, learn from and with, and really walk, accompany them on their journey of education. And so if you are built for that, oh my gosh, then I think you should absolutely explore whether being an academic is something that you want to pursue. The thing for me about my life that's always fascinating is I loved being a hand therapist. I loved being in the clinic. I loved treating patients. I still do. I loved being a teacher. I thought it was an incredible privilege and challenge. And I really did truly care about each of those young humans that I had the privilege of working with. And then when I became an administrator, now I get to see it from a different viewpoint. So the department chair vantage point and the dean vantage point make me think differently about education and think about all the ways that we can be impacting our students. You know, I ask the what if questions now. What if every student that left our educational programs was committed to health equity? was committed to the idea that every single human in our world deserves good health. That's been a great next privilege of my career is to start thinking at that higher level about what are the values and the ethos of the programs that I have the opportunity to be a part of. I have loved every moment of my academic journey. It's not over yet. I don't know where I'm going from here, but the doors are open, right? And I can help the doors be open. And it has been, you know, it's just really fun to be on that side of it. I've also loved contributing to ASHT, to AHS, to ASSH, and really teaching therapists. I actually love teaching therapists. I love the hand therapy review course because people are hungry, right? They're hungry for information. They're hungry to continue to grow and learn. And so I think that question of what are you built for is probably the first fundamental question that anyone who's listening to this podcast should answer for themselves to think about what next door they would like to find and open for themselves. Great. Thank you. I think that is a perfect ending to our podcast today. Awesome. Some great suggestions and just analogies as far as the house. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I've always tried to figure out like how to help the therapist understand like what what are they going to show up with when they get to your clinic? (laughs) So I think that's how they show up is I think absolutely worth thinking about. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Yes. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with you both. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue to offer valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.